Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Believers Without Borders, Christian Ambivalence on the Fourth of July. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 4th, 2010. Both my wife and my daughter were born on the 4th of July. So this time of year is always a special one for my family. This year, there's an added bonus. By a coincidence of the calendar, the 4th of July falls on a Sunday. So while Christians around the world celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on our sacred holy day, American citizens will celebrate the birth of the nation on its secular holiday. This juxtaposition underscores an essential and awkward Christian truth. There's a world of difference between being Christian and being American. The two are by no means the same. To be Christian demands an absolute, unconditional, and ultimate allegiance to an infinite God. Whereas allegiance to a nation, state, or ethnicity can only be relative, conditional, and penultimate. So I like to ask myself what parts of my personal identity are merely American and what parts are authentically Christian? How, when, where, and why do these two identities clash and converge? All four lectionary readings this week emphasize how our identity before God is more important than our political pledge of allegiance. In 2 Kings chapter 5, Naaman was a quintessential foreigner from pagan Syria, a military officer of a major enemy of Israel. The narrator praises Naaman in glowing terms. Quote, he was a valiant soldier, a great man in the sight of his master, and highly regarded. Then he adds a shocking detail. Quote, through Naaman, the Lord gave victory to Aram. Wait a minute. God gave victory to Israel's enemy through a pagan commander? Yes. Naaman also had a skin disease. This disease caused Naaman some medical problems, but his real complications were social, religious, and moral for people with such impurities were stigmatized as ritually unclean and therefore excluded from God's community. But not in this story, because God also heals the enemy military commander. The story ends on a tragic note, with a reversal, when greed overtook Elisha's servant, Gehazi. Gehazi connived connived to obtain the gifts that Naaman had offered to Elisha, but which Elijah had refused. And so Gehazi, the insider of Israel's prophet Elisha, was then struck with the same skin disease that originally afflicted the outsider pagan military commander Naaman. And so the Old Testament scholar Frank Spiner writes, the story that began with this disease ends with it with the difference that its victims have been reversed. The Syrian outsider has become clean, 
and the Israelite insider has become unclean. And then the last page of Isaiah's long prophecy celebrates how God works far beyond the borders of Israel to include all nations and tongues. You need a Bible atlas to take it all in. Tarshish, Libya, Lydia, Tubal, Greece, the distant islands, all the nations. And then, as if all that was not enough, Isaiah writes, all humanity. The ancient poetry of the Hebrew psalmist in chapter 66 affirms how God engages the nations, and yes, all the earth. And finally, in the gospel for this week, Jesus warns about another religious insider, pagan outsider, reversal. He says that divine judgment will be more tolerable for infamously immoral Sodom and for Israel's foreign rivals Tyre and Sidon than for Chorazon, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, places where Jesus lived and performed many miracles, but people did not believe. Luke chapter 10. In his book, The Legacy of the Second World War, 2010, the historian John Lukacs honors patriotism, but warns of nationalism. Many aspects of patriotism are natural, good, and admirable. People rightly love their unique ethnic foods, their roots, history, language, culture, and music. Homesickness is a complement to the sights, sounds, and smells which we love and miss when we're separated from them. But there's also a tox toxic patriotism, like what Lukacs calls nationalism. And in fact, in his view, it was the genius of Hitler to, to exploit such nationalisms. Nationalism, as C.S. Lewis observed, believed that my nation is markedly superior to all others. Lewis once encountered a pastor who espoused such noxish, noxious nationalism and asked him, but doesn't every nation think of itself as the best? The clergyman responded to C.S. Lewis in all seriousness, yes, but in England it's true. And so Lewis concludes, to be sure, this conviction has not made my friend, God rest his soul, a villain. Only an extremely lovable old ass. It can, however, produce asses that kick and bite. And on the lunatic fringe, it may shade off into that popular racialism which Christianity and science equally forbid. Christians ought to be geographic, cultural, national, and ethnic egalitarians. For us, there's no geographic center of the world, but only a constellation of points equidistant from the heart of God. Proclaiming that God lavishly loves all the world, each person, in every place, the gospel does not privilege any country as exceptional. Much has been written recently about American exceptionalism in terms of economic, political, military, scientific, and cultural dominance, America might be unrivaled, and in that sense, exceptional. Some aspects of American exceptionalism are clearly good, and the 4th of July is a good time to celebrate them. But other parts of our so-called exceptionalism are unquestionably bad. 
nor is there any guarantee that American exceptionalism will continue. For history teaches us that even the mightiest civilizations come and go. More importantly, from a theological or Christian point of view, America is no more exceptional in God's eyes than any other country. While allowing for a nat natural and wholesome love, even a pride in your own country, our geopolitical egalitarianism subverts the claim of ad absolute allegiance to any one nation. Our ultimate citizenship, said Paul, is spiritual rather than earthly. Philippians 3.20 Christian global vision asks that we care for every country and people as much as we do our own. America, for example, has a complicated problem with 12 million illegal immigrants, and no obvious solution is forthcoming. But while politicians blame each other to score political points, Christians do well to recall God's words to ancient Israel. Do not mistreat an alien or oppress him, for you are aliens in Egypt. You are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. And from Leviticus, when an alien lives with you in your land, do not mistreat him. The alien living with you must be treated as one of your native-born. Love him as yourself, for you were aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. There's no such thing as a Christian politics, and efforts by all political parties to co-opt Jesus badly distort his message. The Jesus of the Gospel proposes no political program, but something far more strenuous, something that the historian Gary Wills calls scary, dark, and demanding. No state or political party, says Wills in his book, What Jesus Meant, can indulge in the self-sacrifice that Jesus demands when he asks his followers to lovingly serve the least and the last wherever we find them. But what's impossible for a state is compulsory for a Christian. An early work called The Letter to Diognesis from about the year 130 captures the believer's ambivalent relationship between our geopolitical identity and our Christian confession. The quote's a little long, but well worth reading. For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men. Nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines. But, inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has been determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners or resident aliens. As citizens, they share in all things with others, 
and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. Like people in every nation, says the letter to Diognetus, Christians reflect their particular time and place. We support and enjoy our various countries, but only as if we were resident aliens. We experience an ambivalent and divided loyalty, ultimate loyalty only to the city of God and its politics of self-sacrificing love, and merely penultimate loyalty to the city of man and to what Diognetus calls its, quote, merely human doctrines. And so, in the end, we honor every foreign land as if it were our own, and experience our own country as a foreign land. An essay for 4th of July, Believers Without Borders. For books this week, I review an ancient text by the church father Palladius. It's called The Lousiac History, translated and annotated by Robert T. Meyer, New York, Paulus Press, 1964, 265 pages. The Lausiac History by Palladius of the early 5th century is one of a handful of important texts from which we gain an eyewitness knowledge of early Egyptian monasticism. The text gets its name from the person to whom it's dedicated. Lausius was a chamberlain for the emperor Theodosius II. Palladius himself had been a pupil of the famous desert dweller Evagrius of Pontus. Similar in style and content to the lives of the Desert Fathers written in the late 4th century, the Lausiac history contains 71 biographical so-called chapters on desert ascetics in Egypt, Palestine, Syria, and even Asia Minor. The text is written for us as Palladius so that we might emulate and imitate those early monks in their journey to the kingdom of heaven. But his very first paragraph includes a startling addition. He records the lives of not only the desert fathers, but also of the desert mothers. And here I quote, It's written to commemorate women, far advanced in years, and illustrious God-inspired mothers, who have performed feats of virtuous asceticism in strong and perfect intention as exemplars and models for those women who wish to wear the crown of self-abnegation and chastity. These holy, high-born women, says Palladius, live the best and loftiest lives. Unlike the lives of the Desert Fathers, Palladius then introduces us to several dozen women renunciates. One writer speaks of the huge silence of the desert, but the Lausiac history also demonstrates the sheer scale and scope of early monasticism. There were hundreds of hermitages, large and small, that served tens of thousands of desert mothers and fathers. 
Palladius describes their bustling bakeries, tailors, metalworkers, shoemakers, weavers, gardeners, carpenters, camel drivers, doctors, fullers, scribes, liturgies, and the endless stream of visitors. They work, he writes, at every sort of handicraft, and from their surplus they provide for the monasteries of women in the prison. Former slaves, extraordinarily wealthy women like Melania, the blind Didymus, learned scholars, business merchants, a cripple named Eulogius, a rustic herdsman named Paul, palace dignitaries like Innocent, a robber named Capiton, all these and many more desert dwellers grace his pages. They witness to a way of life that feels both strangely ancient, but nevertheless attractive, renouncing all in order to gain all. The author is Palladius. The title of his book, The Lousiac History. films this week, I review a movie called The Galapagos, The Islands That Changed the World, from 2007. On March the 10th, 1535, the ship of Tomas de Berlanga, Spanish Bishop of Panama, blew wildly off course and discovered the so-called Islands of the Turtles. Charles Darwin was 26 years old when the HMS Beagle landed there on September 15, 1835, 300 years later. Darwin left five weeks later and never returned, but his name in that place would be forever linked in scientific history. This remarkable BBC documentary is long at two hours and 30 minutes, but it's divided into three 50-minute chapters. First, Born of Fire. Second, Islands that Changed the World. And third, Forces of Change. If you enjoyed the BBC's Planet Earth, then you'll love this extravaganza of exotic and indigenous plant and animal life. The archipelago of a dozen main islands and about a hundred rocks and islets, located 600 miles west of Ecuador on the equator, is one of the most pristine and isolated places in the world. Climate, ocean currents, and volcanic eruptions continue to shape its history. The British actress Tilda Swinton narrates the film, but it's the stunning photography that makes this fantastic for family viewing. The Galapagos, the islands that changed the world. And finally, this summer we continue our series of poems by John Berryman. John Berryman lived from 1914 to 1972 and wrote 11 addresses to the Lord. This is number six of John Berryman's 11 addresses to the Lord. Under new management, your majesty, thine. I have soloed mine since childhood. Since my father's blow-it-all when I was twelve, blew out my most bright candle faith and look at me. I served at mass six dawns a week from five, adoring Father Boniface and you, 
memorizing the Latin, he explained. Mostly we worked alone, one or two women. Then my poor father frantic. Confusions and afflictions followed my days. Wives left me. Bankrupt, I closed my doors. You pierced the roof twice and again. Finally, you opened my eyes. My double nature fused in that point of time three weeks ago today before yesterday. Now, brooding through a history of the early church, I identify with everybody, even the heresiarchs. John Berryman, number six of 11 addresses to the Lord. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July 4th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.